Lord's Day to you, the Reese's Church family. It's good to gather with you. I will tell you right up front uh, that I miss you. Uh, I think about you often. I'm, I'm calling and checking on various folks and seeing people here and there, uh, although not nearly as much as I would, I would like to. Uh, but I'm also not growing comfortable uh, with this camera. Now, I am very appreciative that God has given us this technology, and uh, Mackenzie Clayton is uh, incredibly helpful in our getting together twice a week to uh, make sure the Word is, is available for you. But I will tell you that I am longing for the day uh, when, when, when I can look at your face rather than seeing a camera surrounded by empty pews. Uh, but I am committed, until that day, I'm committed to bringing you the Word uh, week in and week out through this, uh, through this, through these videos, until that day. I won't be comfortable with it. I won't grow uh, content with it, but I am committed to it. And by God's grace, uh, we have it available to us. But I do want to tell you, and I said it a minute ago, I do miss you. And while I am preaching, while I am looking at this camera, I, I think about you. I think about your faces and your families. I think about various situations that you find yourself in. Some of you are suffering uh, physically from illness. Some of you are dealing with uh, struggles with jobs. Some of you are, are just in, in the various stages of life. And so I want you to know that even while I'm, I'm looking at a camera, uh, physically I'm thinking about you, thinking about your families, and thinking about you. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and be turning uh, to Mark chapter 6. We'll pick back up in our study of Mark's gospel. But while you're doing that, I'll say this, with, with all that's going on, we're in the midst of a, of a crisis. Most of us have never experienced anything like this in our lifetimes. Uh, even uh, going back to World War, World War II, when the economy was uh, shut down and limited in some ways, even that was not quite the same as this. But with all that's going on, we'd ask the question, why would we spend time opening the Bible and talking about the story of Jesus feeding a big group of people. With all that's going on, the, the, our, our country's in crisis, our economy is in crisis, the, the, the financial health of our country is, is trending downward, jobs are being cut, health care is strained to the max, people are fearful of contracting this virus, people are fearful for their families, people are confined to their, to their homes, why in the world would we set aside an hour or two or three, who knows, I might get excited today, but why would we set aside time to open the Bible and talk about a story of Jesus feeding a big group of people 2,000 years ago? Well, in my time off this week, uh, I've been reading a book uh, by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory, and this is a collection of some of his essays. It's not a, a one book from start to finish, but uh, some of you know C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and some other stories that are, are more well-known. But he was also a teacher at Oxford. He taught college, and he taught during the time of World War II. And he taught the arts, the humanities, the English, the literature. And some of his students were asking him during the war, with all this going on in the world, why would we continue to study English literature? Why would we continue to study poetry? Why would we continue on like 
nothing else is going on. And I found Lewis's answer to be quite helpful. Now, he spreads it out over a number of pages, but I want to share with you this quote. He said, To admit that we can retain our interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues, but not under the shadow of a European war, would be to admit that our ears are closed to the voice of reason and very wide open to the voice of our nerves and our mass emotions. This indeed is the case with most of us, certainly with me. For this reason, I think it important to try to see that the present calamity in a true perspective. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. Life has never been normal. Even those periods which we think most tranquil turn out on closer inspection to be full of crisis, alarms, difficulties, and emergencies. Well, he goes on to say that life hasn't changed. The war didn't change their lives. It didn't make something new. In the same way, this virus hasn't made something new in our life. It's, it's awakened us to something we have forgotten, which is that our lives are fragile. Our health is fragile. Our economy is fragile. Lewis said we live our lives on the edge of the precipice. That's like we live our lives on the edge of a canyon. And we have somehow convinced ourselves that that canyon is not there. We somehow convinced ourselves that we are safe and secure, that nothing bad can happen. And yet when something like this, something totally outside of our control, something that absolutely wrecks everything about our lives comes into, comes into our lives, we're left wondering, well, what's this? So Lewis entitled that essay, Learning in Wartime. And he goes on to say, if, if we can learn, if we can devote ourselves to things like English literature and poetry, when there's not a war going on, but when the reality of hell and eternal life is before us, why, if we could study poetry when the danger of hell is before us, why could we not study poetry when the threat of a war is before us, because a war is far less dangerous than an eternity of hell. And so he entitled his essay, Learning in Wartime. So I'm going to call this sermon and the sermons to come sermons in a crisis time. Because if we're willing to devote ourselves, mind, body, and spirit, to the Word of God when everything in the world is going rightly, how much more should we devote ourselves, mind, body, and spirit, to the Word of God when everything is collapsing? You see, the most appropriate, the most essential thing that we can do is to set ourselves beneath the Word of God. So I'd invite you, if you've got your Bible, look at Mark chapter 6, and I'll pick up reading in verse 30. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and talked. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them 
And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were all like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's pray. God, we do confess together that this is your word. And God, we confess together that the most essential, the most appropriate thing we can do in a time of crisis is to set ourselves beneath the authority of your word. We know, oh God, that your word gives life. We know, oh God, that your word is more necessary than even food. And tell us that. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word. It comes from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, help us to see the eternal importance of this story where you fed a crowd by the sea. Help us to see that you are our great shepherd. Help us to see, O oh God, that you provide all that we need. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you've got your notes there in front of you, you see... Now, the main idea that I, want us to, that I want to communicate to you is that Jesus is the great shepherd who provides for his people and meets their needs. That Jesus is our great shepherd, that he provides for us and he meets our needs. And I find it just incredible that God speaks through his word. Now, sometimes we take that for granted. Well, of course God speaks through his word. It's his word. But I find it incredible that the God of the universe, the God who made everything out of nothing, the God who spoke all things into existence, confines himself to written words on a page to speak into my heart and to speak into your heart. And not just to speak into our hearts, but to do it exactly when we need it. Because in his kindness, he intended that we hear this passage today in the midst of this crisis. And I hope to make that clear. You see, God is very kind to us. This is a message for his people. He is going to speak today by his grace right into our hearts. He's going to speak to the very things that we are struggling with in the midst of this crisis. It's a word for his people, but if you're hearing my voice and you are not a Christian, or if you're struggling in your faith, I want you to understand this too. This is a word for you. You are a sheep without a shepherd, and this is a word for you as well. Well, I want us to look at this in, in three 
chunks. I want us to look at what happened, what's it mean, and then what's it mean for us. What happened in the miracle, what did it mean, what does it mean for us. And so let's look first at the miracle, what happened. If you recall, a few weeks back, we, I preached a sermon from verses 6 through 13 where Jesus sends out the disciples on mission. They're to preach and heal and cast out demons. That's, that's, that's connected back to chapter 3 where Jesus says he called the disciples to be with them and, and that he might send them out. So we get to chapter 6 and he sends them out. And before they come back, Mark inserts the story of John the Baptist. And in verse 30, they come back. The apostles had turned to Jesus, told him all that they had done and had taught. And Jesus said, let's go away. Let's find some rest. Let's go. Let's get away from the people, away from the towns. Let's go out to a desolate place. Now, we've seen Jesus do this a number of times. And if you read the other three gospel stories, you'll know that, that pulling away and resting is something that Jesus does often. There's something in there for you and I. That if Jesus pulled away and rested, then you and I are in desperate need of rest. But the disciples come back and they are no doubt excited because the text seems to indicate that they were successful in their preaching and their, their casting out demons. And so Jesus says, let's, let's go away and rest. And while they're getting in the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, it says they're recognized. People knew who they were. Perhaps they created some kind of stir while they were out on their mission. It doesn't tell us exactly how long they were gone, but Jesus indicated in his instructions that it would be a multi-night mission, that they were to, to, to stay in people's homes and go from city to city. And so they've come back to Jesus, and they've gone, they're going to a place of rest, and yet they're recognized on the way, and it says that as they're getting in the boat, they're recognized, and so this crowd of people is running to wherever they are. They're going to take a boat across the, across the sea, but this crowd begins to run. And it doesn't tell us exactly how large the crowd is at this point, only that some people recognize them. Excitement was stirred up. Jesus is, is there. His disciples are there. They've all been doing wonderful, wonderfully great things. Let's go where they're going. And so they cross the sea to a desolate place. This is probably somewhere on the eastern shore where there was less city, less population. And so they get there, and as soon as they land, it says that uh, a crowd was waiting there. And when he went ashore, in verse 34, it says he saw a great crowd. And so there they were. They're seeking rest, and yet there's a crowd waiting. And this crowd didn't just happen to, to notice that Jesus had come ashore, remember. They, they went to where he was. There were no towns around. There was nothing to draw this great crowd of people there. They went there because Jesus was going to be there. And instead of driving the people away, because if, you, know, you and I, when we get tired, sometimes we just want to be alone. We just want to rest. We don't want to be bothered. And if you're like me, which I am fully human, when I get irritated, when I get worn out, I just want to be left alone and bothered. And if that's infringed upon, if somebody interrupts my trying to rest, I probably will respond in an irritated manner. Go away. I'm trying to rest. I'm trying to get some me time. And yet here, Mark tells us that Jesus has compassion on these people. He's trying to get away with his disciples. He wants to hear all about what they've been doing. He wants to give them rest and help them recuperate. He wants to care for them. And 
yet this crowd of people interrupts that, and in his grace, he responds with compassion. Because, because it says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep need shepherds. Sheep need guidance. They need protection. They need to be guided into green pastures so that they can eat healthily. They need to be guided to waters so that they can drink. They need to be protected from predators because they have no natural defenses. And so when Jesus says, or when Mark tells us that the people were like sheep without a shepherd, he's saying they were helpless. They had no leader. They weren't being cared for. They weren't being fed. They weren't being protected. And so Jesus has compassion. Well, it says that Jesus began to teach them things. He doesn't record, Mark doesn't record that he healed anyone, only that he talked. And so he teaches them for some period of time, and it wears on into the late afternoon. Verse 35 says, and when it grew late, his disciples came and says, this is a, a desolate place, and it's getting late. So the implication from the Greek language is that it's probably wearing into the afternoon, four or five o'clock perhaps. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, look, um, we've been here a long time. We're still trying to rest. We have no food. This is a huge crowd of people that we'll need to eat. Send them away. Send them into the neighboring villages and let them eat. Now, Jesus gives them a response that the disciples are not prepared for. They're trying to get Jesus to send them away. Jesus, wrap it up. Let's go. I'm getting tired. I'm hungry. I don't want to deal with, with these folks anymore. And yet Jesus tells them, you feed them. You do it. You. You've been on mission. I told you it didn't take much, so you probably don't have much. Well, out here in the wilderness, and there's nothing, there's nowhere to get any food out here, but, but you feed them. You give them something to eat, is what Jesus says. Well, the disciples respond in a rather snarky way. It's almost a disrespectful way. They tell, they, they ask him, verse 39, I'm sorry, uh, they ask him in verse 38. Sorry again, 37. I'll get there. Uh, they asked him, should we go and uh, buy food for all of these folks? Should we spend 200 denarii to, to feed all of these people? And you see that the 200 denarii doesn't quite translate to us. We don't exactly know right off the bat what that means. But if we do a study of some of the other Gospels and understanding the times in which they live, that's about half a year's wages for the average worker. About half a year's wages. So in our time, that's probably between somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars. The average salary, or the average half of a year salary. And so the, the disciples say, should, "Should we spend that amount of money to feed this group of strangers once? Is that what you're asking us to do, Jesus?" And so they respond in this disrespectful type of, of way, this snarky, sarcastic response. And, Jesus says, well, what do you have? What do you have? Take stock of what do you have, because mind you, the disciples were, were, were going to say, send them out into the neighboring villages, but where are the neighboring villages? Because they're in a desolate place. And villages in this time would have been between three and 5,000 people on the large end. And I'll explain this later, but we're probably looking at a crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people. 
And it's not like there was fast food restaurants. It's not like there was a McDonald's and a Bojangles and some other things where these folks could kind of file into. You've been there. When you pull up to a Bojangles and then the tour bus comes in and you just kind of mosey on out because you don't want to wait in the line. There weren't these places available. And so not only was the disciples' response to Jesus a bit snarky, it was also misguided because these folks couldn't find anywhere to eat. They couldn't find food. And so Jesus said, well, get what you can, find what you can. And they come back and they say, well, we found five loaves and a couple of fish. Five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Well, uh, based on the time, based on historical study, a loaf of bread is not what we're thinking about. Like you go to the store and you get a loaf of bread that'll make 10, 15 sandwiches. That's not the kind of loaf we're talking about. This would have been uh, about a six-inch flat pita-like piece of bread. And so five of them would have been enough for one person. It was a person's lunch. Mark is not concerned with who had the lunch, if you'll notice. Some of the details are a bit different. Mark is concerned with the amount. There were five small pieces of bread and two fish. And behind the disciples, because they've been facing Jesus, behind the disciples was a massive crowd of fifteen or 20,000 people. And they're standing there and they're saying, well, Jesus, this is all we have. This is it. And so Jesus said, well, have the crowd sit down. Sit them, sit them in groups of hundreds and fifties. Arrange them on the green grass. That's something that's in each of the Gospels, the phrase green grass. Have them sit down. Have them rest. Have them prepare to be fed. Well, Jesus takes the bread and the fish and he looks up to, to heaven and he, he offers a prayer. Now, that it, it was common in those days to offer a prayer. It was not common in those days to look up to heaven. The Jewish practice was to look down in reverence, and yet Jesus takes them and looks up to his Father and offers a customary blessing, and then he distributes. The ESV records that he gave them to the disciples and that they were to distribute. Now, I found it interesting that the phrase, and he gave them, and he gave them, translates more appropriately, kept on giving. So, in our Bibles, it says that he gave them, the disciples, and food to distribute. It actually more appropriately reads, he kept on giving them the bread and the fish. And so the people are seated in groups of hundreds and fifties, and the disciples are distributing the bread and the fish. And do you, can, you, can you think for a moment about how many pieces of bread and how many fish you would need to feed 15 or 20,000 people? Well, you need a lot. You would need more than you can hold. Now, here's what's interesting. Mark records this story. The way that Mark records this story seems to indicate that the crowd had no idea that a miracle was going on. It seems to indicate that only Jesus and only the disciples knew the supernatural act that was going on. Because with the phrase, kept on giving food to the disciples, the implication is the disciples kept coming back to him. So they would receive a handful of bread and fish. They would go and distribute. They would come back and receive another handful of bread and fish. And on 
on and on and on it went until all the people were fed. And I couldn't help but smile. As I was looking at the language and, and the, 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 the implication of it became clear, I couldn't help but smile. Can you imagine the disciples' faces as they came back to Jesus again and again? These disciples who, just a few moments ago, had said, well, well, Jesus, how do you want us to feed them? There's no supermarkets around. There's no, there's no uh, places to go buy bread enough around. What do you expect? And Jesus just, just calmly stands there and gives them an abundance over and over and over. Can you imagine his face as his disciples came back to him over and over and over? Well, the crowd eats. They're satisfied. They eat as much as they want. And then there's 12 baskets left over, which is no doubt symbolic. Some say it's symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. I think it's symbolic of the 12 disciples. Those who doubted, those who doubted that the crowd could be fed are left with an abundance that they don't need. Well, that's what happened. What is the point? What's the point of this miracle? You see, the Bible is full of these kinds of things, and this story is full of biblical imagery. There are a lot of things in the story that kind of bring the Bible together. The first one is that we find the people in the wilderness without provision. We've seen that a number of times, specifically with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. They go into the wilderness and they have nothing. They have no water. They have no food. We see people without a shepherd, without Godly leadership. We've seen that. When Jesus shows up on the scene, the, quote, religious leaders are not leaders at all. They are harming the people. We see people in a situation that is not practically solvable. There's nowhere to send them to get food. There's not enough food to give them. And there's not enough money to buy food, even if food was available. And so it's not a situation that's practically solvable. But something else we see. We see God's miraculous power and provision in the wilderness. We see a people without provision in the wilderness, but we also see God's miraculous power of provision in the wilderness, which is something we also see with the Israelites in the Egyptian wilderness. And Something that Mark doesn't do a whole lot of, the other Gospels do it more so, mainly Matthew. But here, Mark is saying, don't miss this, Jesus is the new Moses. If you remember from Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said before he died, there's coming a greater prophet than I. There's coming a greater leader than I, who will lead you in the same way out of an exodus, or out of captivity through an exodus into the promised land. And here, Mark is saying, hey, don't miss this. There is a provision in the wilderness by a shepherd, and it is God himself. And Moses is not going to, I mean, Mark is not going to focus on that a whole lot, but he does bring it out because Mark's focus seems to be on the disciples. If we're to ask the question, why does Mark include this in here? Because it's an important story. It's the only miracle that's included in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all include this story, and it's the only story included in all of them. Why? What is, what is, so, what is so special about this? Well, we've got the, just the, the miraculous nature of what happened. 
Jesus taking a meal for one and feeding a multitude. But Mark seems to be focusing on the disciples in particular because they were utterly unprepared for this. They were not ready in any, by any stretch of the imagination. Jesus had tasked them with a situation that required them to lean on him totally. When he said, give them something to eat, and when he said, you feed them, he was teaching them to rely on himself. The right response from the disciples would have been, well, Jesus, we, we can't. And yet the disciples revert right back to using their logic. Well, Jesus, uh, what do you want us to do? There's no food here. We don't have enough money. There's nowhere. There, there's nothing left to do but to send them home. We need to remember that the disciples are just returning from a mission where they've had to fully rely on God's provision for both their physical and their spiritual needs. God, well, when Jesus sent them out, he said, don't take a whole lot, rely on God to meet your needs. And so they've just come back from this successful mission, and here they're given the same opportunity. Rely on God to meet your physical and spiritual needs, and yet they miss it. They've just succeeded. And now they miss it. And so this miracle story, inside of how Mark's telling of the gospel, is more about confronting the disciples with who Jesus is. The crowd, as I said earlier, is basically unaware. They've heard him teach, and now they're eating. They're none the wiser as to what happened. If Jesus had created all that food in a moment, the crowd probably would have responded. And yet he says the crowd sat down, and they, they were satisfied. They were unaware of what was going on. The disciples seem to be the only ones aware of what Jesus is doing. Can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking as they came back to Jesus time again and time again and time again? They would take another handful of bread and another handful of fish. And they would go and give it to the people. And would come back to them. No doubt they were probably feeling ashamed. How could we have ever doubted? They were probably feeling humble. They were probably feeling overwhelmed. They were probably worshiping. And so I want to spend the rest of our time asking the third question. What does this mean for us? We looked at what happened. It's a spectacular story. Jesus taking uh, a small one-person meal and feeding a multitude. That's incredible. We looked at the point. The point was to bring the disciples face-to-face with the reality that they were missing, which is Jesus is Lord. What's the point for you and I? How is this story meant to function in our lives? We see some of us, some of us are acting like this virus is the end of the world. Some of us are acting like there is a very real chance that God might not be in control of this. Some of us are acting like we've forgotten all the truth that the Bible lays out before us day in and day out. Some of us are acting like the disciples. Some of us are acting like the disciples. 
We're being faced with a situation that is pushing us outside of ourselves. And we're saying, you can't be serious, Jesus. What do you want me to do, Jesus? Let me remind you of what C.S. Lewis said in his essay, Learning in Wartime. He said, war has a way of reminding us of death. Remember, he said that war doesn't create a new situation. And he says later on in the essay, he says, how much does war increase the likelihood of death? Zero. Because everybody dies. Well, what it does do, what war does do, is war brings us face to face with death. Remember that precipice we talked about? Brings us face to face. Oh, there's danger. In the same way, this virus, the, the crumbling of our economy and our healthcare system, everything else that's going on, is not creating something new. We all still die. You're not somehow going to avoid death if you avoid this virus. What this virus is bringing us face to face with is the reality of the fragile nature of life and the reality of death. That this life isn't about me. That I'm not in control. That I really am going to die one day. And I have no control over that. If you have not allowed the Bible to discipline the way you think about death, the way you think about life, if you've not allowed the Bible to shape and guard those thoughts, then you are probably finding yourself in panic mode right now. You're probably finding yourself worried about, well, what if? What if this? What if, what if that? What am I supposed to do? You're probably worried. If you have not allowed the Bible to condition your mind to think much about God's control over literally everything in the world, including the very molecules of the COVID-19 disease, if you are not thinking that God is in total control of this, then you are absolutely in panic mode. And like the disciples, you find that you are utterly unprepared to respond to this in faith. I have no doubt some of you have not opened this as much as you thought you ought to. Some of you are responding to this situation in a worldly way, not in a gospel way. If we are not daily in the Word, if we are not allowing the truth of God's Word to shape our hearts and to shape our minds and to walk faithfully before Him, then we are utterly unprepared when reality checks us and we panic. We're acting like sheep without a shepherd. If that's the way you're responding, if you're responding in, in, by being worried, having anxiety through your heart, and you're panicking, worrying about, well, what if this, what if that? Then you're acting like you don't have a shepherd. Well, you need to hear and remember the words of Psalm 23. This story is full of links to the psalm, the, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I mentioned a moment ago that the word green, the phrase green grass is in there, and it's in the Greek, green grass. Do you know why? Because a green grass pasture means it's lush, it's rich, it's full. 
when Jesus sits the crowd down, he sits them down in lush pastures full of goodness, full of rest, full of care from their shepherd. They are well cared for because they are in the presence of the good shepherd. And so as we turn to Psalm 23, Christian, I want you to know that these words are for you. They are your words. Psalm 23, David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and we could even say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the COVID-19 crisis, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Listen to this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christian, if you are in Christ, those words are for you. They are an unending promise. They are unmovable. They're immovable. Take hold of them. Let them speak life into your soul. Don't be like the disciples. Don't be like them running around saying, well, well, what do you expect me to do, Jesus? Listen. Listen to the words of the Good Shepherd. But... While Psalm 23 is an unchanging promise, I think many Christians are only theologically prepared to be blessed by God. That word, theologically, is just a combination of two words, study of and God. Study of God, that's what theology is. And so when we think theologically, what we mean is time with God in His Word. And so let me say that again. I think most Christians only spend enough time in the Bible to prepare themselves to be blessed by God. And one theologian notes, most Christians are theologically unprepared to suffer. Maybe that's you. That you've read enough of the Bible to where you, you are ready for God to bless you. You're ready for God to care for you. You're ready for God to comfort you. But you haven't read enough of the Bible to where you expect to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe you haven't read enough of the Bible. Maybe you haven't let God speak into your heart enough to say, suffering will come. Suffering is a reality of living in a broken world. Suffering touches us all in many ways. Some of you, like the disciples, are responding to God like this. What? I tried my hardest? I'm a, I'm a good person. I try to be healthy. I, I don't go around other sick people. I do everything I'm supposed to do. Why am I, why am I suffering? Maybe you're suffering physically. Maybe you have contracted the COVID-19 disease. 
Maybe you are dealing with some other kind of ailment that makes you worry about contracting. And maybe you're suffering from worry and anxiety. Science tells us that anxiety has a real effect physically on our bodies. Maybe you're suffering from anxiety. Maybe you're suffering economically. These shutdowns and stay-at-home orders are affecting thousands and millions of people, perhaps. Some are losing their jobs. Some are suffering financially. Maybe that's you. Maybe you are looking at this stimulus package that just passed with the government saying, finally, at least I'll get some cash. At least I have some hope. At least I can make it. But you see, the government's not gone. And even if the government sends you money, the money will go away. The government can't provide help for your soul. The government can't provide help for your, your mind and, and your heart. Maybe, maybe you find that you aren't trusting in God as you ought. Like the disciples, you might be realizing that you're only thinking with worldly wisdom. You're only being practical and literal. What can I do? The disciples are giving us another example of the progressive nature of discipleship that we talked about the last two weeks. I've said several times, discipleship doesn't happen all at once. It's a growth process, and the disciples are showing that even though they have insider information, going back to Mark chapter 4, when Jesus says, ears to hear, eyes to see, even though the disciples have been given the inside secrets of the kingdom of heaven, they can't see this situation. They can't see it. They did not process this situation biblically. They're faced with a crisis. They're pushed to the edge. They have a reality check in front of them, and they can't process it through a biblical understanding. And it's a sign that their spiritual maturity is growing, but isn't yet mature. Because we would like to think, how could the disciples miss that? How can you and I miss that? Jesus does not only bless us with peace. Now, he does. The Bible is clear. We get a peace that surpasses all understanding is what Philippians 4 says. But we need to remember the context of Philippians 4. Paul is suffering as he writes this. Because Jesus, in Mark 6, brings the disciples to a crisis point. He brings them to a situation that they can't handle. And look how they respond. Perhaps Jesus is bringing you to a crisis point so that you might see him clearly. Well, throughout the Bible, we see God transforming the wilderness into a life-giving, refreshing oasis of his goodness. Let me say that again. Throughout the Bible, we see God transforming a wilderness into a life-giving, refreshing oasis of his goodness. Most clearly, as I said, we see that with the Jews coming out of Egypt. But we also see Jesus doing that here in Mark 6. He takes his disciples to a desolate place. There's a huge crowd of people, sheep without a shepherd. The need is great, and yet he sits them down in lush green pastures and feeds them with an abundance. 
You see, we need to realize that Jesus has the power not only to transform the COVID-19 crisis into an oasis of peace for you and I. Now, before I go on, let me say that first part again. Jesus has the power to transform this present crisis into an oasis of His goodness that refreshes our souls. He doesn't have to change anything about what's going on. This is something He does in our hearts through His Word. He has that power. But we need to see, because we haven't touched on one part of the story. Jesus not only has the power to transform our experience of this crisis, he can also turn the crisis into a platform for us to spread the gospel far and wide. We would be remiss if we did not also highlight that Jesus, although he is dealing primarily with his disciples, is also meeting the needs of the crowds. Mark is drawing our attention. He's focusing us in on what Jesus is doing with his disciples. But behind that, Jesus is still ministering. He's still meeting the needs of the needy. And so while Jesus meets physical needs, he provides physical needs for he provides for the physical needs of the crowd. It's always a means to a greater need, which is the meeting of spiritual needs. Because before he ever feeds them, if you remember, he spends time teaching them. Well, over in James chapter 2, verse 15, we read these words. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, that does not have works, is dead. James is saying, don't just tell people, hey, hope you make it. He's saying, go and be with them. Aid them. If somebody is hungry, feed them. If somebody is cold, clothe them. If somebody is sick, help them get the need, help them get the care that they need. Over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, we read these words. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here's what John's saying. Put your money where your mouth is. Here's what John's saying. If you've got stuff and you see people who need stuff, give them your stuff. It's a big challenge. Because we are living in a time when physical need is very great. There are people who need food. There are children. There are a mass of children who, because they're not going to school, have to eat. And thank, thankfully, our state is responding well. And our educators are responding well. And I praise God for them. But there are other people in our community that need food, that they need clothes, they need errands run for them. The physical need in our community is great, but the spiritual need is greater. People will need food to live 
or they die. That's true. But if people die outside of faith, they die forever. That is far more important. Let's not miss the opportunity to meet a physical need in the name of Jesus Christ while we spread the gospel of healing far and wide to a world in desperate need. Let's not let our fear of a virus overtake our faith in God. Let's not let our fear of a virus overtake our faith in God. We'll walk in wisdom, yes. We'll make choices based on what the experts are saying, yes. But we walk with a wisdom that's seasoned and led by faith in a great sovereign God who commands bread and fish and disease. You'll be hearing more about this in the coming week or two, but Theresa is organizing a mission outreach to care for the needy in our community. Be prayerful about how God would lead you to be a part of this. Perhaps God is calling you to pray. He's calling all of us to pray. Perhaps God's calling you to give, especially to make sure those needs are met. Perhaps God's calling you to be a part of that. You'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. But for now, I want to close with this quote. You know, it's good sometimes to look back at the history of our church, not the history of our church, Theresa, but the history of our church, meaning God's church. Because while this health pandemic is new to us, it's not the first time the Lord's church has gone through this. In the 15th or 16th century, we can read about something called the Black Death that swept across Europe. And some of you may know the great reformer Martin Luther. He was ministering in Germany during this time. And here's something that he said. He said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate. I'll help purify the air. I'll administer medicine, and I'll take it. I'll avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus uh, perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. But if God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person. I shall go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. See, Luther had the right idea. If God should wish to take me, he knows where to find me. God is in such control of this world that not even a molecule disobeys him. So church, let's be not like the disciples. Responding to a crisis situation with all the logic, with all the power, with all the ingenuity that we can muster. Let's be like what Mark is calling us to see, a people dependent in full on the grace and power of Jesus Christ as we walk in faith and make much of his name. Because I remind you of our main point. 
Jesus is the great shepherd who provides for his people and meets their needs. God, I thank you that you are kind and speak to us through your word. I'm thankful that in your sovereign control of everything, you controlled my sermon planning so that we would come to this text on this day. You kept us from getting here any earlier because you knew we would need to hear this word on this day in this situation. And that is kind. It is loving. Lord, we pray that as your people, we would be convicted to our core that you are our great shepherd who provides for us and who meets our needs. Where we confess, we know you are in total control over even the molecules of the COVID-19 disease. Or to give us the attitude of our brother Martin Luther who said, if God should want to take me, he knows where to find me. Lord, teach us to walk in faithful dependence upon you. Teach us not to miss any opportunity to make much of your name. Lord, we love you. We need you. And Lord, we know by the grace of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have you. But I pray for those under the sound of my voice who may not know you. They may not have the assurance that I speak of. God, I pray that you would work the gospel in them, that they might know that if they repent of their sin and call upon you in faith for the forgiveness of their sin, all that I have said, all that your word has said can be true for them. That they too can have a great shepherd who will meet their needs and provide all that they need. We pray all of this in your great name.